Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. Christ is born. Glorify him. We at TMTS hope everyone has had a wonderful Christmas and wish our listeners a blessed new year. In today's podcast, we will begin the last section of the book of Genesis, commonly referred to as the Joseph Novella. It's called as such because unlike the other character-centered portions of this book, the narrative surrounding Joseph as the main focus is quite long and takes up roughly 28% of the book of Genesis. That's quite astounding, and it gives his story a lot of weight. In short, it's the culmination of everything the book of Genesis has been teaching us so far, and likewise it will act as the precise springboard into the rest of the biblical story. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Right off the bat, there are several reminders of the overall biblical thesis being laid out here. Firstly, we're told that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in Canaan. This is important because it reinforces the teaching that this land is owned by no one except God, and it is God who is allowing Jacob and his family to live here peacefully. Yeah, especially when you consider the last line in the previous chapter. It says, these are the chiefs of Edom according to their dwellings in the land of their possession. We know that any human taking something as their own possession is generally bad news. But it should be all the more striking in the first verse of today's chapter where we are told that Jacob dwelt not in the land of his father's possession, but the land of his father's sojournings. That word in Hebrew is the word gur which refers specifically to sojourning in an unfamiliar land. It's the same word that gives Hagar her name, because she was the stranger in Abraham's household because she was an Egyptian. If I decided to hop on a plane tomorrow and fly to Afghanistan, I would be a gur in Afghanistan. Abraham dwelt in this land, and he was a gur because he never took possession of it because it was God's. That's the problem of Scripture. All people are strangers in God's land, but we convince ourselves that we have a measure of control over our dwelling place, and that's no good. The Bible is making a comparative statement with these two verses. We had paragraphs on paragraphs of Esau's descendants telling us about the chiefs and the kings, etc., etc. Then we have this single statement at the beginning of chapter 37 that Jacob dwelt in the land of the sojourning that his father did, which was the land promised by God. I think that this verse should really be pushed back into the end of last chapter, 
because when you stop and take breaks between chapters, you lose this important detail. And next, we are told that Joseph is a shepherd along with his brothers. Specifically, we hear that he was shepherding or pastoring the flock. The word for shepherd or pastor in Hebrew is roe, and it is spelled resh ayin hey in Hebrew. This becomes striking when looking directly at the Hebrew letters, because in the same verse, it says that he brought a bad report to his father. The word for bad, or evil in some cases, is ra'ah. Now, the vowels are different when pronounced and when written in English, but the spelling is exactly the same as roe. Both of them are resh, ayin, hey. If we discount the Nakud vowel markings, which, as we know, came much later than the original text, we are left with no other choice than to see them as the same word. Its precise meaning is totally left to context. This is fascinating because scripture has used shepherdism as its driving metaphor for its own scriptural ideal, that it becomes quite vexing when that same word is used in a negative context. Right. It's the same basic concept, and many teachers of Hebrew today would probably disagree with what I'm about to say, but I think that the Bible is totally lacking in the concept of evil as we think of it. You pointed out how this word, resh ayin or resh ayin he, is often translated to evil, and it is the Hebrew word that we conflate with the ugly sister of our ego-inflating mistress, good. Good and evil. It's a story as old as time, right? Or is it? I could talk about this at a greater length, but I'll spare you the extremities. At the basic level, the Hebrew word as it refers to shepherdism, specifically, is a reference to the breaking of a wild or unruly animal. That's what a shepherd does. Abel was a keeper or a breaker of flocks, okay? To be a shepherd, the best interest of the animal must be the center of focus. If an animal is acting in an unruly way, you break the animal. Breaking an animal is simply the process of making an animal behave in a submissive manner. In our modern context, the word is most often associated with horses. You break a wild horse in order to, you know, domesticate it, in order for you to be able to ride it. Often, this isn't a pleasant experience for the animal, but it's necessary either for the animal's own safety or the safety of the animals around it. So when this Hebrew word is used to refer to adversity or wickedness or evil, it is connected to this basic concept of shepherding or breaking an animal. It is to behave intentionally toward another living thing in such a way that they have a negative experience, but it is ultimately intentional on your part, whether you're doing it for the good of the thing or to do the thing bad, whether you're trying to harm it. That is why it sometimes seems like in English translations, uh, that the text outright describes God as evil, or it accuses him of creating evil. And that can be really confusing in English, but again, it's all connected to this idea. So if we stick with the basic concept of breaking in the context of shepherdism, it might be a little confusing, but that's why Hebrew is such a useful literary language. It's all about context, but you must also allow the Semitic background of the language to act as guardrails keeping you from falling off the side into speculation and nonsense. Sometimes the guardrails are really narrow and you can't move much from side to side, and other times they're a bit wider. That's kind of what this word is like. Sometimes it's simply a noun denoting shepherd, 
Other times it's a noun used to describe horrible atrocities committed by men. In other times it is used to describe actions taken by God, the ultimate shepherd of humanity. So again, hopefully we see the connection. God is breaking us into a submissive behavior where we simply do what he wants us to. That is the story of scripture. But again, the word exists on a spectrum. It doesn't mean one thing. It's a concept, and that concept is applied in different situations with a single thread of continuity connecting each occurrence of the idea. Right, and what makes this occurrence even more interesting is the complete lack of context regarding this interaction. The text gives us no indication about the behavior of his brothers, but as we know from previous incidents, namely with the Shechemites, they aren't exactly model citizens. That said, we need to refrain from speculating on a text that is likely purposefully vague here. The text then refers to Joseph's father, not as Jacob this time, but as Israel, and it says that Israel loved his son more than the rest because he was the son of his old age. This harkens back to Isaac and how he was miraculously born to Abraham and Sarah in their old ages. The only difference is that Israel is elevating his son to this position, whereas in Isaac's case, his function as the child of promise was declared by God. This is the same old behavior that Israel slash Jacob has been known for. He also fashions a coat of many colors for his son, which in Hebrew has a clear connotation of just being well decorated. Again, this is a sign of Joseph's elevated place in Israel's own mind. It's almost regal, which makes sense because Joseph's younger brother Benjamin is absolutely regal in every aspect. Not only does the name connote royalty, but his descendant is literally the first king of Israel. But speaking of Joseph again, this elevated place, despite his junior among his brothers, is what gives him this pastoring authority, not only over the sheep, but functionally over his brothers. This is why Joseph feels the need to report whatever he reported to his father, and why the older brothers are so hostile to this. This is an interesting spin on the story of Cain and Abel, but here, the jealousy of Joseph's brothers is a bit more understandable, but their reaction is obviously hyperbolic, as we will soon see. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So here we have the first instance of the prophetic dream in this literature. This was certainly a common literary device in the ancient world, and they were taken much more seriously than they are in the modern context. In our post-enlightenment context, dreams are little more than our brains processing thoughts, memories, and emotions during the REM stage of our sleep cycle. In the ancient world, however, this was almost 
a portal into the metaphysical reality in which secrets of the wills of the deities and of future events could be ascertained by interpreters. Likewise, it was common for the upper echelon of society, especially on the regal end, to have dream interpreters ready on hand. This was a big deal. What is interesting about dreams, though, is that they contain such a vivid propensity for all of the major storytelling features. There's narrative, there's symbolism and metaphor, and according to the ancients, a core lesson. So it really is the perfect mechanism for literature in general as a means of foreshadowing as it does here. But how is it functioning in the text? Well, both of these dreams are strenuating the growing tension between Joseph and his brothers, and then even his father, who is his only real advocate. Joseph is the only humble character in the story. Jacob has thought of himself high and mighty this entire narrative, and his ten other sons have already followed in those footsteps. Thus, they can't stomach the humiliation of these dreams, which seem to indicate that they will serve their younger brother, which is already against the grain of how these ancient societies worked. Joseph is far from the firstborn of Jacob. In fact, he's literally the second to the last. But due to the haughtiness of Jacob and his ten older sons, God is using Joseph in the story to humble them down. We see this constantly throughout scripture where God exalts the humble and humbles the arrogant. One final note I want to make on this is the poor translation in verse 11, where it says that Jacob kept this saying in mind, referring to the dream. In Hebrew, it simply uses the word shamar, which means to guard or to keep. This is the same verb that gets used whenever it speaks of people keeping the law. He's respecting it, in other words, instead of just dismissing it. That's an important detail because while Jacob is not totally humble, he's not as far gone as his ten other sons who are virtual psychopaths. Again, Jacob was a shady con man, but his sons are literal murderers and, like Cain, are going to attempt to get rid of their brother purely out of jealousy. Right, and in their dialogue to Joseph, there is some interesting word choice made on the part of the Hebrew. Many, many episodes ago, perhaps in one of our first episodes, I talked about the different nuances among the various Hebrew words for reigning, ruling, lording, etc. The most important one is kind of like that word roe or ra'ah that we discussed earlier for shepherd or evil. That word, of course, is mashal. This word means to rule with authority, such as Solomon mashal, and the kings of the land brought tribute to him. He had authority over them and controlled what they could and could not do. Mashal is also the word for parable because a parable is the authoritative instrument for communicating a lesson that you should pay tribute to, meaning it controls your behavior. And we should all understand, hopefully, that scripture is one total mashal, which makes sense because its main focus is usurping the hearer of their power, whoever they are, and issuing authority over their behavior from that point onward. Why is this relevant to Joseph's story here? Well, in verse 8, his brothers say, Are you indeed to reign over us? Which is from the word for king, Malek. So they are saying, Will you indeed be a king over us? Then they say, Will you indeed rule over us? Which is from the verb mashal. I think the repetition of similar meaning verbs is, of course, just meant to emphasize the point the brothers are asserting. But why did the authors choose mashal? Why not another similar verb like rada? Well, I think it's because we are about to hear Joseph's mashal, and what it communicates to us, the hearers, can easily be rejected. 
the same way his brothers are currently rejecting the idea of his moshel, or ruling over them. What's more is that also in verse 8, at the end of the verse, it says they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And we must remember also that the Semitic word for word is intrinsically connected to the concept of storytelling. So this is sort of a meta-acknowledgement of the role that scripture plays within itself. It's subtle here, but this use in this word choice of mashal is but the Bible's classic literary symbolism and wordplay. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go, now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Verse 12 goes back to highlight the double meaning of Resh Ein Hay as being on the one hand a shepherd or pastor and also meaning evil. While the brothers are pastoring the flock, they are planning to commit an evil act against their brother. It couldn't be any more clear in this context. Next, we see a solidification of Israel's assigned role of Joseph as the de facto head of the brothers, marked by his regal clothing. If Israel is the Bedouin sheikh, Joseph is his appointed heir, the son who was chosen by him to become the sheikh in light of his death. So Joseph obeys his father and is met by a wanderer in the field. A bit of a strange encounter, but the man that is wandering is himself lost. That word for wander is ta'a, which is used when someone errs, goes astray, or wanders like a lost sheep. This gives me a suspicion, and it's just a suspicion, that this ish in the field could be a wandering male sheep, who is astray from the flock because of the abandonment of the shepherds. For one, an ish is sometimes used to describe non-human male animals, like in Genesis 7, when God commands Noah to put male and female animals onto the ark. So one could translate this as male rather than man in this instance, and the connotation then would be the sheep. And yes, it would be strange for the sheep to talk, but we have to remember that this is literature. We've already had a talking serpent, and later in the book of Numbers, we have a talking donkey. So this wouldn't be the only occurrence of something like this happening. And it also symbolizes the failure of the other brothers to take care of not only the flock entrusted to them, but of their younger brother. It should be them who are protecting Joseph instead of the other way around by the end of the story. So this male sheep tells Joseph that his brothers are in Dothan. Dothan is difficult to translate because it's not a Hebrew word, but it's likely related to the Aramaic word dat, which means law or decree. This makes sense as it is the place where his brothers, who are Aramean in behavior and function, are inflicting judgment on Joseph by their own decree. This could be the reason why it appears as Aramaic and not Hebrew. Aramaic is the language of the city dwellers, and Hebrew is the language of the scriptural God.
Continuing on in the text, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of those pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But then Reuben heard it, and he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. One thing to note in these two passages is the hesitation of Reuben and Judah. Reuben first is unwilling to literally slaughter his brother. And the text makes it clear that his intention is ultimately to save Joseph after leaving him in the pit. His reaction to seeing the pit empty just reinforces this. Judah, on the other hand, still wants Joseph gone, but likewise does not want to kill him. It is his idea to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites, which he does for 20 shekels of silver. Unsurprisingly, this story is alluded to in the gospel narratives where Judas, which is identical to Judah in Greek, sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Remember also that Jesus is the son of Joseph, and Joseph as a character in the New Testament is obviously hearkening back to the Joseph of Genesis. Another interesting thing to note is the oddly confusing narrative as to what role the Midianites play in the story. We are told that the brothers see the Ishmaelites approaching, and then the Midianites seemingly come out of nowhere. It's not immediately clear whether the brothers sell Joseph or whether the Midianites do from context. But regardless, he is sold to the Ishmaelites. But at the end of the chapter, it says that Joseph was sold by the Midianites directly to Egypt. So what's going on here? Well, the critical scholar would say that this is evidence of the documentary hypothesis, where there were originally two different narratives of the story, and a final redactor just kind of sloppily merged the two together without much care for contradiction. However, I think it is silly to concoct this extremely complicated multi-source hypothesis just to account for one supposed discrepancy. But if we see this as a body of work composed by one author or one school of authors, this supposed discrepancy can be explained. For one, the names Ishmael and Midian have literary value. This is something that gets missed on scholars. Ishmael, of course, harkens back to Abraham's older son, who was similarly mistreated by Sarah, the mother of Isaac, the younger son of promise. 
It is no coincidence then that the descendants of Sarah, who are the Israelites, are continuing this behavior towards Joseph. Remember again that Israel and Sarah both derive from the same root Sarah, which has the connotation of prevailing. The Midianites then hearken to later in the story, where Moses will dwell as a ger, a foreigner amongst the Midianites, and live as a Bedouin. Knowing the totality of the scriptural story and where the story will lead helps us work out these instances. That is the problem with critical scholarship, because they spend so much time on minute details that need the overarching context of the story to account for. The Bible is a really well-written literature, but it's also a massive literature, and I think that that gets lost on scholars especially. This text is far more intelligently constructed than the secular scholar would admit. But the important thing is the story, and as far as the story is concerned, Joseph is now on his way to the double bondage, Mitzrayim, what we in English call Egypt. And this is against his will. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So here they slaughter a goat on account of Joseph, which harkens back to the wandering sheep Joseph met in the field, which led him to this situation. It's also evocative of the Raham embodied in Joseph's character, who is the lamb who is not only slaughtered, but will save the Israelites at the end of the story by the forgiveness of Joseph. So the mourning of Joseph by Jacob is self-explanatory, but at the end, the introduction of Potiphar as Saris is interesting. This word refers to a chief eunuch, which was a common occurrence amongst kings so that their second-in-command wouldn't be a threat to their women and would be more loyal to the king without the demands of their own families. This also has a humorous spin because we later hear that Potiphar has a wife. So how does that work? Well, I don't know. I think that's the joke as she makes sexual advances towards Joseph. But Potiphar, of course, borrows from the ancient Egyptian language and means he whom Ra has given. It's an interesting choice to name Potiphar, since the other characters aren't given any special names. I'm speaking, of course, of the Egyptian ones. Think of the chief cupbearer or the chief baker later on in the story, or even the pharaoh, who is never named in any of these stories. Again, this is just speculation on my part, but Ra sounds a lot like Roe and Ra'ah, and with the heavy use of these words in this chapter, I wouldn't put it past the authors to include some clever wordplay between the Resh Ein He root and the Egyptian word Ra. Evil, Ra'ah, done by bad shepherds, Roe has brought 
Joseph to Egypt under Potiphar, who has been brought by the god Ra. Kind of interesting. But again, purely speculative. I've never heard anyone bring that up before, if it even has anything to it other than my brain, which is always eager for these literary connections. Yeah, I think that makes plenty of sense. There must be a reason behind him being the only named Egyptian figure. Literature of this day did not have the luxury of whim and fancy like our literature. It had to use metaphor, symbolism, etc. to make its point. Emphasis on use it. It used it to make its point so that brevity could be maintained. It didn't use those things as pretty decorations like authors do today. There is certainly a reason, and I think what you described makes perfect sense. Regardless, we will soon hear more of all of this important mashal, the story that caps off the book of Genesis with the character who receives more focus than any other thus far, that of course being the character of Joseph. We have sped into his story, leaving his father behind. Jacob hasn't disappeared completely, but it should be noted how we heard so much about his nefarious deeds to then hear about a couple of scripturally sufficient actions, only to then move on from his story with no grand exit accounted for. The mighty nation he envisioned is divided already within its first generation. The majority of his sons are cruel and wicked, so naturally the Bible will focus on the least fortunate of all of them, Joseph. We will continue that story next week. Until then, Christ is in our midst. He is and ever shall be. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.